0: I'm Jean McCarthy, and this is The Bubble Hour, the podcast where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. Today's guest is writer and recovery advocate Olivia Pinnell on the online magazine Live's Recovery Kitchen, which is a hub of stories, recipes, interviews, and articles on recovery that come from a kind of holistic perspective. Liv understands that recovery from addiction requires attention to mental and physical health. In addiction, in addition to quitting drugs and alcohol, Liv, welcome to the Bubble Hour.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's
0: it's so cool to hear your voice after literally like years of reading your work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's bizarre, isn't it? We you know we see all these people online and we engage with them, but we never hear their voice. Yeah, it's really good I... to hear you.
0: I know it, it adds a whole other dimension to. Uh, you, makes you want to go back and read everything again, so that I can yeah. hear it in your voice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Someone well, told me well, once. I, I I sometimes practice your voice at home when I read things. Oh. <laughs> in a in a in a British accent, which I thought was that really. It sounds funny. so much
2: nicer. <laughs> Thank you. Well,
0: let's hear your beautiful British accent right now. As you tell us your story, what unfolded in your life to make you aware that you needed to make changes? Um, I think
1: I've been aware of needing to make changes for a long time.
0: I've um,
1: uh, you know, i mentioned before that I, I was actually born in America originally, but because of addiction in my family, I ended up living in the UK from the age of three, and I, I grew up there. Um, And that kind of tore me apart uh, for for a long time. And, you know, it it really left a hole in me. I'm not sure if it was that that created the hole of addiction or whether I was predisposed to it. I don't know. I have a number of different views. But um, I I was aware of it from a very young age. And um, I was writing about it yesterday, actually. I was writing about what came first. And for me, the very first substance that I used, although I wasn't aware of that at the time, I was just aware of this this, um, emptiness was food um you know I remember being less than 10 years old and sort of sneaking away to eat food and kind of have some semblance of connection there um and to make myself feel better and you know skip forward a few years and I I found drugs and smoking and um I, I heard in a meeting the other day somebody say that it when they first took drugs it's like going into a dark room and someone suddenly puts the light on and And that really hit me because that was what it was like for me um i I just I finally felt alive, and all of this anxiety and loneliness and emptiness that I had sort of suddenly went away, and I chased that for another what twenty years i i i got to the age of thirty two when I found recovery um it was just one long disastrous road of you know the same as everybody else you know uh, damaged relationships I damaged my body I gained 150 pounds I you know on the to the outside world that you know they would call me a functioning alcoholic or addict but you know in, in terms of having a job and having my own place but my life was consumed by getting my next fix and Overcoming that fix the next day, trying because I was also physically ill when I used. Um, I was very sick, um, and yeah, I mean that was my life for for a very long time. Does that does that kind of cover it?
0: Oh, it it definitely gives us a picture of um, a sad a sad way to be. Um, was there something that happened that that flicked a switch for you, or did it come in in little bits? Well, a, a close
1: family member had taken me to AA uh, two years before I found recovery, um, because at, at that point I was I was becoming increasingly aware of there being a problem. Um, I I had watched somebody in my family and their their demise into alcoholism, so I I was aware that that was what was happening to me. And, you know, more and more people were were com- concerned about me. Uh, you know, at some points, people called me live the liability because they didn't know where they were going to find me and in what state. Um, so I had attended a couple of meetings and I, I just wasn't ready. So, you know, the road to my rock bottom took another two years. And I think slowly but surely, I removed everything from my life that got in the way of me and and drugs and alcohol and you know I got to this place where I'd I'd just left my last job my only proper job that I'd had um and I I just had this monumental binge uh, I drank I think I drank 14 bottles of wine and had a packet of codeine over a weekend and as you can probably imagine I was very unwell and just something happened in that moment I think um to the very core of my being I'd had enough I couldn't I couldn't carry on like that and the awareness became so loud that that I had to do something I either you know I was faced with either choosing to jump out of my window or getting help and because of that hand that somebody had placed out for me a few years ago I knew that there was a road to recovery um and I I just took a leap of faith I and I still to this day you know I don't know how I I've made that choice but I'm really grateful that I did
0: that's encouraging to hear because I think sometimes you know people offer recovery solutions to people they see that are hurting and they get rejected you know like yeah um but but really what we're doing is planting a seed and yeah did you yeah, feel Go on. did you feel like uh, at all as though um you know, sometimes there's a bit of pride that comes in that like, well, I said I didn't want to do this and, and now I'm going to have to swallow my pride and go go do it. I said I didn't want to go to 12-step meetings, now I have to swallow my pride and do it. Or were you, did you know you would be, be welcome there?
1: I think both. I I felt so utterly defeated that I i would have done anything at that point mm-hmm. to stop drinking and I, and i think that overcame the pride I, of course, I didn't want to go into a room where people were staring at me and talking at me and holding my hand and being really nice, and I, you know, I I just wanted to, I wanted, when I was sitting in that meeting, I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me, (laughs) Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, often people contact me and say, you know, I've got this friend and this family member that, that needs some help, and, you know, what advice would you give? And I you No, know, and it's really difficult because you know that you can't give anybody recovery, but you can show them how you recover. Um yeah. and just hold out that hand for them.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid to go to meetings. I was afraid to go to a meeting because I didn't want to be seen I was t- partly feeling like superior you know like well I yeah. haven't hit a huge rock bottom but I was also I was really afraid that if I went to a meeting someone was going to say you're not bad enough you don't need to be here and I really knew that I needed to be there yeah. so um, you know I know there's a tradition of of, um, you know not talking about meetings and things like that so just in generally and still in keeping with the Traditions of twelve-step programs. What can you say, sort of generally, about the spirit of welcomeness and openness that you found in the rooms?
1: um Well, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I, I am very open about about my recovery and about not, I, you know, I of course wouldn't share what I've heard in meetings, but I am open about that being a, an aspect of my recovery. Although it is unbecoming an aspect of my recovery, I have always felt. Um, Very welcome with open arms. Welcome, I was shown a kind of love and affection that I had not experienced for a long time. Whether people were trying to show me that or not, I was only able to feel it once I got there. And you know, when I feel really lonely and out of sorts, just being amongst those people that are like me, whether it's in a, a meeting or in a meditation group or being amongst other recovering people makes me feel, I don't know, I can't, I, I don't, it's the power of the co- you know, that collective empathy. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, you know, in, in relation to your question, I, I have always felt very welcome. Uh, there have been times when I felt unwelcome uh, in America, since I, you know, I moved here in January, and I've my experience of twelve step fellowship here has been very different to the UK. I have felt very out of place.
0: That's interesting. Do you think that just is the dynamics of a particular group that you've fallen into, or um, do you think there's sort of a cultural difference between? It's the a big
1: cultural difference. I, you know, I, I've actually been writing about it because I, I think that we, you know, we put this message of of being a global fellowship um, in NA and AA, uh, you know, those are both fellowships that I've attended. And I have just found that a hand of fellowship is not universal. Um, and that could be, you know, it could be a reflection of my state of mind. Um, but I felt when I moved here that I needed that fellowship more than anything else ever. Uh, I, I moved here on my own. I moved to a place where I didn't know anybody. And, you know, apart from a couple of people that I'd met online. And I I really needed that sense of belonging that I had felt so openly in the in the UK. And I didn't feel that here. It was really isolating. Having said that, um, I made a switch from NA to AA, and I have felt more welcome there. But the people that I have become friends with are not from this area.
0: So that's interesting. That you know that uprooting your life and moving to a new country is is a big enough thing on its own but when you're trying to protect your recovery on top of it um, th- those are some pretty huge stakes so could you yeah. just tell us like some practical things that you think are helpful for people that are in a completely new community like how, do, how would you say to quickly get up and running and make sure you have some support in place um, it, you know <laughs> I didn't
1: when people said to me, are you insane? You're moving to a place where you don't have a job, you don't know anybody, and you've got nowhere to live. And I would say, yeah, sure, why not? Um, You know, of course I knew that there were very practical things that I needed to do, um, but I don't think I fully grasped just how much emotional bandwidth that move needed. Uh, But I am very practically minded, so I made sure that I you know i have my friends on speed dial i speak to them most days i've maintained those friendships here i think had i made this move a few years ago you know not 5 years in recovery i think it would have been more difficult but i've got 5 years of sustained relationships that i've developed with people who know me inside out you know they know the darkest parts of me and they know how my brain works so keeping those intimate relationships has been crucial and especially given that of my experience in fellowship here I've been able to lean on those a little bit more than I would normally do um I I did all of the usual things that people suggest in fellowship you know I I went to meetings every day I got a new sponsor I um you know and I was texting people and calling new people but it just wasn't feeling right, so I had to adjust and I adjusted by leaning more on my friendships in the u k by trying different fellowships and also by broadening my horizons and looking at different types of recovery um, so I could you know i I could reach out to my online recovery network, which is has uh, been crucial, and look at other different modalities of recovery and that where my recovery is going at the moment.
0: What are some modalities that you found helpful?
1: Um, well, I, I'm i going to be pursuing uh, Life Ring. I'm going to look at Refuge Recovery. I, I'm going to be doing some work with the Ilano Club here. It's a wonderful recovery um, space uh, that hosts a lot of different types of recovery events.
2: Oh, and here's my dog making there. an appearance on the Bubble Hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cute. I love
1: dogs. Oh. Um, so I, I'm going to be going there, and um, I'm actually going to be doing some work with them as well and delivering some workshops. So it, it it's a place where I know that there is going to be a broad spectrum of different types of recovery, and and that really appeals to me.
0: So you went through those pretty quickly, but Life Ring is, is – um lifering.org. It's an interesting group because it is not at all spiritual and the meetings focus more on the present and the the immediate present. So I believe as I understand it, that the the, um, uh, it welcomes people from recovery of all different isms whether it's you know gambling drugs alcohol sex anything you you need to get yeah. out of your life and rather than being um a lot of 12-step meetings people talk about their low points because that helps them stay sober by remembering where they don't want to go back to yeah in life ring the conversation is more focused on what did i do today that helped me stay on the right path is that a, yeah is that a fair explanation well to be honest i've not
1: been yet i've just been speaking to um to bobby there and talking about my experience uh at, at the moment of 12 step and talking about how they might be a better solution for me so that is mm. something that, that that is my understanding but i've not had first hand experience of it yet i'm going to go and and do that over the coming weeks but I, it um, sounds so
0: interesting. I'm going to follow up with you. I want to hear more about it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> because, because it,
1: you, you hit the nail on the head there. That's what I'm experiencing is, is this lack of connection to what is going on for me right now. I feel that when I go to meetings, there is nothing that disconnects me more than hearing people's sad stories. I remember uh, Sarah Roberts talking about this. I interviewed her, and I said, "You know, why why don't you do twelve step fellowships or you know questions to that effect?" And she said, "Why would I want to go and sit in a room and hear the same sad story over and over?" And that has stuck with me for the last couple of years. And I, you know, I sit in a meeting and I hear that, and I, I just think I, for my recovery, I need connection, and I need connection with people suffering in everyday life. I need to know how they feel and i need to know that i'm not alone in those feelings i don't need somebody mm-hmm. to read literature at me that is from 1939 and i don't relate to
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: i i want real life experience and i i've also looked into smart recovery you know and i like the idea of you know them giving you tools to you know so you don't have to be attending meetings for the rest of your life because i feel right. that recovery recovery is a bridge to normal living,
0: right? Isn't it? Isn't that what we're sold? I think it's the hope. I do think it's the hope. And I think different programs work well for people, different people, depending on how they're wired personally and how yeah. their addiction, um how far their addiction went and how it showed up in their life. So for for some people, and I think especially those that that uh, as they say, rode the elevator all the way to the bottom. I think yeah. AA 12 step works really well for that. But yeah. I think we're we're sort of coming to this new place in, in time, thanks to the internet, where I think people are, uh, women in particular are starting to seek recovery earlier in the addiction trajectory so that they're able to identify when they've crossed that line earlier and they're able to access so much information and so many other stories that help them do something about it sooner. And so I think it, it requires different solutions, and that's what we're starting yeah. to see emerge. And um, I, I love I that. Agree.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: And you you see it as a as a writer and as a blogger, right? The people that are reaching out to you um, are often still active in their addiction. Yeah. They're just in that contemplation stage. They're searching for answers, yeah. and they find they find bloggers like you and like me or like this podcast earlier in their search and the the earlier you are this is good news for you listeners yeah. the earlier you are uh in the in the um spectrum of addiction the more choices you have i feel yeah. and the farther you go the fewer choices you have the farther you I go can- into way. addiction, that one by one the options start to fall away, and
2: yeah, um,
1: and and you know, and those narrowing options, you know, you end up in treatment in rehab. I didn't go to treatment. I mean, I I did an alcohol detox on my bathroom floor. I didn't realize the physical risk that I was at at that stage, but uh, um,
0: yeah,
1: you know, I I think it's wonderful that people are starting to reach out at an earlier stage because there is that gap between. You know, reaching that that lower stage, and I think that's the, it's the gap that separates people from getting recovery because they feel that I'm not bad enough yet. Right. And and having that state of mind pushes them further. Whereas you know, the online recovery community is starting to do things like, you know, I I think Kelly and um uh you know the sober seniorita, she did um with Carly they did a a, a one week you no know, drinking challenge. And I think that really plugs that gap and gets people to start having a little bit more awareness of, well, how is alcohol affecting my life? And it, it sort of feeds into the uh, the thirst that people are getting for a little bit of recovery. That's so the sober curious market, let's say.
0: Oh, I like that. Uh, yeah, curious. that's not
1: my phrase. That's not my phrase, I should ask. But no, I, I heard funny. it and I thought, yeah, you know, look at, I mean, look at hip sobriety, for example. You know, Holly... Holly speaks to that market of women that, you know, I hope I accurately reflect this, but, you know, she speaks to that women that haven't got quite to that stage yet. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, you know, more and more we're seeing that there is that huge market there for um, potential recovery. And that makes me really hopeful because I don't want people to get to the stage that I got to. I couldn't have gone any further. Uh, that was my that was my bottom I think I think the next stage for me would have been to jump out of that window because I couldn't continue how I was Um, now
0: you so your recovery hasn't just involved abstinence from drug and alcohol you've also addressed mental health and healthy eating so tell us about those aspects of uh, um your life
1: it's it's been um It's been a slow (laughs) journey. In fact, I was writing about this specifically yesterday that it it is, over the years, I've found that my recovery has. I've gained a greater awareness of myself And how addiction manifests in other areas of my life Um, I wouldn't label myself a food addict I would label myself as a person who suffers with addiction And Mm -hmm. I can see now over the course of those five years That that looks like drugs and alcohol that I needed to put down And then smoking, you know, I was smoking 30 cigarettes a day I'd light one up and be thinking about the next one (laughs) it was was, it's the same behavior you know I I was binging on high carbohydrate food I was sneaking it I was hiding away and I same. and, and these were behaviors that I was engaging in in recovery and as I gained that awareness I realized you know hang on a minute this is contradictory you know I I'm loving myself enough to not harm myself with drugs and alcohol but I'm harming myself with food and smoking uh and the one thing that recovery has taught me is that I need a more balanced life. So I approached one thing at a time, and I gave up smoking, and um, and then I tackled food. And you know, as I said earlier, food was the very first substance for me, and and it's different to all other substances because you can't abstain from it. Um, right, yeah. it's so hard, yeah, <laughs> isn't it? You know, I I can't do the whole. Abstain from sugar completely. I I can't do me personally would label as extreme. I have to Mm -hmm. do something that works for me. And and what that looks like is is trying to act in a more mindful way with food. Uh but in order to get there, I had to completely revolutionise my relationship with food. You know, I had to look at why I was eating in the same way as drugs and alcohol. Why am I eating food in this way? What and, uh, but I had to go deeper, and and this is where the, the the twelve steps fell short for me. I felt that it didn't go enough into the psychological and physiological aspects of addiction for me. I need to understand why I do what I do, and you know, I I realised that as with mental health, you know, I I feel that I'm not sure if I'm going off a bit of a tangent here. I'm not sure if depression came first for me or addiction. But mm-hmm. I remember as long as my earliest memories, I have suffered with depression and the the drugs plugged that gap, albeit temporarily and albeit making things worse, but they made me feel better. So I think, you know, it makes total sense that when you get into recovery and your brain, brain chemistry is, is rewiring, that you still have that depletion of, of feel-good hormones and you you seek them out in other in other ways so with food or with nicotine or with sex or with excessive exercise whatever you are still doing that with your brain and actually there is a part of your brain that overrides the rational part and and well that's why you know you you open that packet of biscuits and you know you've got the science aspect of it where they've manufactured the food to make it highly highly palatable so that you can't put it down and then you've got the brain saying more, more, more and you and then you look down and you've eaten the whole packet of, of cookies, you know so yeah. once i understood that I could then start to make more rational choices and um, I worked as a food coach and she helped me around the mindfulness but for her she her philosophy with me was that My life at that stage, I think I was two years in recovery. I think it was 2014, December 2014, when I I tackled my food. And she felt that my my recovery, my life was recovery and work. That was it. There -hmm. was no fun in my life. So she started to encourage me to incorporate a little bit more fun, which is where the blog started, which is where... I started sharing my food recipes and then I realized that actually I've got a, a, some talent for writing and cooking here. And it still surprises me today when people say, oh my God, you know, you can really cook. And I'm like, can I really? Yes. <laughs> I, just, I just love doing it. It's just come so naturally to me. So, what kind yeah, what I mean, were
0: you doing before, Olivia?
1: I I have a history of uh, working in sort of public sector places. So my last job was for a university in England and I was sort of operational support type work. And mm-hmm. I felt very unfulfilled in that. I don't work well in a reactive kind of job. And I think that was a big aspect of my eating the way that I did and using I just felt so unfulfilled and, you know, I felt like I was on this conveyor belt of going to work, you know, like a little robot. I, I hated my life, um, even in recovery. So as I gained that, more, you know, that, that awareness, I thought, like, again, this is contradictory. I'm supposed to be living a life that is full of promise and hope and I'm doing this that I hate. I need to make some changes.
0: Um, Do you think people get sucked into by um, Being successful In their work Being well rewarded by it and then So thinking They should be happy because they have a Good job or they're you know they're making money Like I wonder sometimes If there's crutches that help us get Sober to begin with like Focusing on work or eating or Smoking you know we can sort of do some Behavior transference to Overworking or overusing other Things but then that has to be temporary right because then as we start to recover and we start to peel back some layers we find that the very things that we use to help us get sober can in the long run be undermining our sobriety so it's like a transition phase do you identify with that it's
1: completely and i think i i wrote i wrote an article about hacking happiness last week and and in that introduction i i wrote that I think traditionally we think of happiness as having all these material successes and, you know, that suddenly when we attain all of these achievements, as it were, um, that we should be happy. But actually we're not because all we do is we increase the stress, we increase the commitments, we increase the obligation on us. And actually when we think about it, you know, does having 2.4 children um, make you happy, you know, do you like that you've got a nice car? Or, or actually, when you think about, when you compare that to recovery and the unveiling of who we are as people, we realize that actually none of that stuff matters. Well, a true happiness is a sense of fulfillment and, and purpose. Well, it certainly is for me. So I mm-hmm. felt that, that those things, you know, yeah, I mean, there is a a, a big aspect of me that, that compares myself. You know, I come from a family of highly successful people and I I look at the fact that, I, you know, I'm 37 years old. I don't own my own house. I don't even have a car. I have moved to America on a budget and I'm trying really hard to make my life work, working for myself. But I compare against other aspects. That, you know, my peers, and I see that actually they're not very happy. They don't have a sense of purpose and fulfillment that I do. So does it matter that I don't have those material things? It's very right. so easy to get sucked into that, you know, but I I think I'd rather stay where I am. I'd like a bit more work, but
0: <laughs> wouldn't we all? Um. And, and what do you have on the horizon for that? Are you pursuing writing full-time, or are you job seeking I, what's happening for you right now i'm
1: um i'm freelancing full time so my my business is writing for recovery publications and i i want to venture out into do more recipe writing i would love to write a cookbook about my experience and some um you know helpful recipes for people in recovery i I'm going to be developing some ebooks for people. I'm going to be creating some workshops in Portland to help people in recovery. I feel so passionately about giving people the tools to feel well in recovery. I don't think, certainly for me, that the traditional modality of, you know, as long as we look after our spiritual health and we're well. I feel that there can be there's another dimension to tap into. I feel that if we look after our physical health and we, you know, we we eat right and we feel good, I just think that can only enhance your recovery. So mm-hmm. I wanna I wanna give people the tools to be able to do that.
0: I love it. I don't think there's a yeah. recovery cookbook on the market, is there?
1: I don't think there is. I think there are a few people that do sort of sugar type you know the exclusion of sugar type food books uh there are uh, you know there's a plethora of healthy eating books out there but I want to get away from that kind of phraseology of clean eating and healthy and you know this this vision that we need to be these little clean machines and actually think about how can we live more mindfully and Mm. you know if you want a cake eat the cake I mean yeah sure try and make a more nutritious version of it because you you know you might affect your brain chemistry a little bit better and you'll feel good you might have a little bit more energy but if you really want the cake you know eat the cake just do some exercise
0: Um, I I want balance in my life (laughs) it's interesting too that you you use the word mindfulness when you're talking about food because I think for those of us that have a of using food for comfort for numbing the yeah. same way we've used other substances. Um, we go into a trance state when we're doing any of our comforting numbing behaviors. And like I I think we lose time, we lose perspective. So, you know, like you yeah. say you look down and the whole box of cookies is gone or the whole bag of chips is gone and you're not you're surprised to have eaten it all. And yeah. I mean, that's sure too bad, because if you're going to eat a whole box of cookies, wouldn't it be wonderful if at least you remembered it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that you enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and enjoyed it. And I think, you know, if, if we approached, if we were using food for pleasure versus numbing yeah. and for fuel versus um, numbing, um, to yeah. to pay attention while we're ingesting it probably would mean that we would stop sooner because we would have perhaps achieved some of that fulfillment that we were seeking in the first place from using it yeah because as you say we can't be abstinent from food that doesn't that doesn't serve us very well
1: no and you know and there are (laughs) fellowships out there that that you know that suggest that you do abstain from foods that you can react addictively to so i you know i know that if i eat for example white bread I, I will really struggle to put it down because it has the same effect on my brain as drugs. Um, hmm. You know, I immediately go more, more, more. So that's the risk that I take when I eat those foods. But I, I, I don't think, uh, for me, I can abstain absolutely uh, from those substances. Um, there are, you know, there are a million different yeah, I know. There's one fellowship. In fact, it's the original eating plan of Overeaters Anonymous. It's called Gracie, where they the eating plan is the exclusion of all carbohydrates c- completely, sugars, starches, everything. Hmm. And I, for me, I
0: couldn't work in that way. Right. Yeah, it works for some people, but exactly. it might be you know, and I have for some others, it, it might be too restrictive. Exactly. I've
1: got a good friend that it works really well for, but for me it's about balance and it's about feeling good about the choices that I make. I don't want to feel like I have to obsess over portion sizes and weighing my food and restricting certain food groups. I just want to make choices that make me feel good and I like you say, I, you know, can feel the pleasure of food rather than use it to
0: escape myself. Tell me now, as you look back on your old self, on on how your life looked when you were in active addiction mm. of, of many different types, um, what are the parts that you see of yourself as being identifiably different today than they were then?
1: Gosh, I think I'm a completely different person. Uh, I, I just felt like a shell of a woman back then. Uh, you know, I... I had numbed all senses of myself. Um, yeah, completely different I, I, looked, I, I was talking to, to a couple of people yesterday and I looked at um I, I made this video of my the story of my addiction, and you can see the dead eyes and the bloated body and the the sadness in that woman. And I just don't identify as that woman anymore. And people, people say to me when they see me now, my God, your eyes are so sparkly.
2: Mm, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I forget. You know, I forget that the, I... And and I think that's why I struggle with identifying myself as an alcoholic or an addict. I, because I'm not that woman anymore. Yes, I have a disease. I'm not entirely sure if I agree that I have a disease. I don't know. I have something that... That makes me want to escape myself and it mm-hmm. never completely goes away um mm-hmm. but i am not that alcoholic and that addict that i was five years ago
0: okay let me let me flip that question around slightly and ask it in a different way then inside of yourself then was a kernel or a seed of who you are today so when you look oh. back can can you see it from that perspective like what was there a glimmer of you that remains that you brought forward or like Yeah, no, I
1: guess I had this, you know, there was always this dream inside of me. Um, it had just been minimized by, by the drugs and alcohol, you know, this dream of an extra dimension, you know, living in two countries growing up in the UK, I always knew that there was this new realm available to me of America. So I'd hoped that, that, the something could I could have pursued something there and that that I would eventually have a life it's just I guess dull for so long but yeah that I guess that's grown into what what I am today you know I I have fulfilled that seed that seed has sprouted and you know there are sparkly flowers
0: at the end of it (laughs)
2: now
0: how do you the the courage to make that move and to to uproot your life and and come to America what do you think it's recovery that gave you the ability to do that could you have done that where you were before no I absolutely think
1: it's recovery I think that recovery and challenging every aspect of my life as I have you know discarded the things that don't work for me has given me the ability to look at you know work you know I I was so unfulfilled in my life there sure I had I have and I continue to have some really close friends there but I felt that I had outgrown that life so being strong in my recovery enabled me to to make those next steps and and my god it was scary (laughs) It, it still is you know I I still have moments where I'm you know walking through portland and uh, even in california when i was there a couple of weeks ago and I, I think oh my god i live in america <laughs> it's uh, very it's bizarre it's surreal uh, yeah
0: what has been the response of the people close to you in your life when you first got sober and as you've become this new person have you had to edit some of your relationships to fit who you are today
1: yeah, completely. I I only have two friendships from my uh, addictive days. I kind of discarded all of the people that I, my using buddies. Um, but I think actually at that point in my, in my life, I had, I was using on my own anyway. So I didn't have an awful lot of friends and mm. my family members stuck by me, but they, you know, they sort of kept me a little bit at arm's length so over time as I've shown continuous recovery those relationships have um you know I've amended them and I've uh grown them into you know much closer relationships than I've ever had um so I've yeah my my relationships today are much deeper and I am much easier to be around. I'm no longer called Live the Liability. Um, people, <laughs> you know, people people say to me I'm really warm and loving and caring, and um, that's not the person I was five years ago.
2: Hmm.
1: Were you afraid to be that person? What, five years ago? Um, yeah, were you afraid
0: to be loving, or did you fear rejection, or what prevented you from being that way? I think... I think my obsession to to use prevented that I, I people
1: got in the way of me using so right. they were inconvenient and you know they just served as a reminder of my problem so i didn't want to be around people i you know i i have always loved to cook for people that's an expression of my love and care but even that i i didn't want to do anymore because and to do that would involve drinking a lot of wine. And, you know, it was a, a joke of my friends was, you know, one bottle of wine for the Bolognese and one for Liv. And, <laughs> you know, and that was before the food was even served. So I was completely floshed, you know, by the time people came over. And then I, it would just descend into chaos. So, yeah, I, I am certainly, yeah, I, I love giving to people now. I, I, it fills me with a sense of purpose.
0: Ah. Uh-huh. Do you yeah. have a recovery hero? Who do you take your inspiration from? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, hmm. I wouldn't say I have one. I would
1: say, um, you know, there is no one in particular, but anybody else that I see in the online recovery community that is recovering out loud is mm-hmm. an inspiration to me. I see um, people talking so clearly about recovery without shame, and that inspires me. I feel that we don't talk enough about recovery. We talk up too much about the addictive side of things. I mean, I, I do think we need to create an awareness ab- about the problem of addiction because we need people to get help, and it needs to be le- considered less of a moral failing and more as a disease, but... Um, yeah, I I'm really inspired by seeing people
0: speak up. Um a lot of our listeners are in that sort of contemplation stage that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And I I just wonder if someone is listening to this and saying, "Well, okay, Liv, you're you're my recovery inspiration. You've got it, and I want it." <laughs> <laughs> Me. What would you say to that person who's trying to decide like where do I start and how do how do we know when it's time to make a change
1: I think the very fact that you're considering it
0: means it's time to make a change and
1: the only thing that I would say is that you're worth that change um there are so many different ways to recover you just need to to make that first change and to to get some help um Mm -hmm. reach reach out to somebody Um, uh, I think when you admit that you have a problem, that's the very first step of of getting some help. You know, it creates that, that, I guess, uh, greater awareness. You know, we know deep down that we have a problem, but saying it out loud
0: makes it more real. Mm -hmm. To ourselves and to others, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like the power of sharing in a meeting. I think there is, or, or writing, you know, writing has been a really powerful tool of my recovery. It's that it helps to marshal your thoughts it, and it's that transference of it coming out of your head and, and out in some way, whether it's through your mouth or through a pen, um, it gives it more power and it makes it more real.
0: Have you had any backlash um, about being open about your recovery coming from a a 12-step background? And, you know, anonymity is is a hot topic these days. We're sort of at a really pivotal moment in time where people are seeing that, you know, anonymity is a powerful part of recovery and it's got its place, but we need to talk about things so that we can shatter the stigma. Have you had any
1: flack about that? No, luckily. Um, I, I've had a few negative comments sometimes on, on on publications that I've written for, but I tend not to engage in it because you know, it's more a reflection of the place that person's at. My I, I do have a very strong view on anonymity and I feel that um, I'm certainly not anonymous and I don't believe in anonymity for me because it, I feel that it just perpetuates shame. Um, I feel that, you know, there are, I I am aware of other bloggers that have been written to and told to remove their second name from articles because they're identifying themselves and that in writing about their experience of recovery, they've become an unofficial person, unofficial spokesperson Mm
2: -hmm. for
1: a certain type of modality, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a problem with that. Um, I feel that I have the power to express myself freely and that I'm not harming anyone because I'm not revealing anybody's personal information. I'm only speaking about my own personal experience. And that's all. I think if I work within those boundaries, then, then how can it be harmful? Mm-hmm. Why, should I, why should I be quiet? Because if I'm quiet, how does somebody else know that they can change their life? And stop hurting right. themselves Yeah
0: It's a very personal decision isn't it
1: Yeah Yeah yeah. And you know
0: I, I, What works for people
1: works for people But I think there is evidence to suggest That people are becoming less anonymous You know there are so many projects out there And campaigns to Shatter the stigma attached to addiction And the only way to do that Is to create an awareness of all of these people In recovery um, and that's a really powerful
0: tool I think the new generation coming up Is much more inclined to to um, Well not It's not that they're just shedding the stigma It's that maybe they Weren't so entrenched in, in it as, as we were And those that have gone yeah. before us uh, In that they live in a different world So I'm really grateful um, For your openness and for your willingness To talk about things because I agree I think this is the only way that we can um that we can get the word out and and change the way people um connect and and get yeah. healthy. We we can save people from rock bottom experiences just by sharing our stories and have people go, "Oh, okay, me too. I can stop now." Yeah. Um I feel like the one challenge it does present as people get sober earlier in their in their um, addiction, addiction journey or spectrum or earlier in the process is that motivation can be a little bit harder to maintain because we don't have that like, Oh, I really don't want to go back to rock bottom. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: how do you stay? I mean, you, and you did have a low bottom, but what do you do to sort of maintain your um, motivation to stay sober and stay healthy? Um <sighs>
1: I don't know. I think it's just innate in me. I, I now that I have this life that is so fulfilling, I don't want to lose it. That's my motivation. Mm. Um, you know, I stay, I stay sober by continuing to make healthy choices. And you know, my recovery program is, is, is. It, I believe in it, it. The need for it to be fluid. You know, what worked for me five years ago doesn't work for me today so I just need to continue to keep an ear to myself and see what's working for me. And, you know, when I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm feeling consistently that this isn't working for me, then, then it's my opportunity to have a look at other things that might work for me. Um, And, and to, to treat my body well, you know, to exercise every day, um, you know, I, even if it's just going for a walk, just going outside for five minutes um, just helps me feel better. It looks after my mental health. And uh, that is a big part of my wellness, making sure that I eat foods that, that nourish me and that don't harm
0: me. You know, and if you want to have
1: white bread, have some scrambled eggs with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and put the bag away, right? Like, just have one yeah. little bit.
1: exactly exactly put it in the freezer (laughs)
0: um tell me a little bit about your work where can our listeners find your work and uh, tell me about some of the exciting projects that you have on the go right now um you can find you
1: can find me um actually do you know i typed my name to google last week it was quite uh shocking (laughs) but you can find a lot of the publications that i've written for podcasts that i've been on and um and my website was recoverykitchen.com. I, the projects that I'm going to be involved in are a workshop for the Alano Club in Portland. I'm also going to be developing some ebooks. I would love anybody to contact me about writing a book. I would like some, some guidance and support on that. And um, I'm really open to possibilities. Um, I would like my my career to be a big portion of it to be writing but also helping other people i don't like the word coaching it just doesn't sit right with me so i guess helping people giving people the tools to to be well uh you know whether that's one on one in a workshop
0: or um over the phone however that works well I think you've helped a lot of people today just by sharing your story. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that want to follow up with you. So can they reach you via lives Yeah. Yeah,
1: they can. There's um, my email address is there. It's just live at lives um, Or I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Just, Just shout.
0: That sounds wonderful. It's been a really good pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks so much yeah. for being on the bubble hour. It's it lovely pleasant. to hear your voice. We're going yeah, to actually meet each other in a few weeks in New York at the I know.
1: Um, next week. It's next oh week. Oh my I'm gosh. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Oh um, <laughs> That's really exciting And um, listeners, I know I'm so excited about that And I remember a few years ago There was uh, the recovery march on Washington That a lot of people were going to And I wasn't going So every time I heard it mentioned I was a little bit grumpy about it Because I was sad I wasn't going to be there So if you're hearing us talk about this And you're um, wishing you could be there There is a link on my blog Where you can at least live stream it um, and, I, believe,
1: um, I was Senate talking to Dawn yesterday. I believe there are actually a few tickets that have become available.
0: I think, yeah, I think there are some that you're right. So she recovers.co um, will have information if there are tickets available for it. And I will be also covering it on my blog. I'm going to be making sure that I talk to as many of the exhibitors and speakers as I can and, and posting highlights of it as well. So for those that can't be there, they can they can join us virtually and um and uh be as close as as we can get to getting you yeah there. well thank you so much for being with My us pleasure. today any final words for our listeners um oh put me on the spot um no just, <laughs> just,
1: just um you know be well be well and however that looks for you just just be well
0: oh, i love that Well, I've been chatting with Olivia Pinnell of Liv's Recovery Kitchen. You can reach her via her website. For The Bubble Hour, I'm Jean McCarthy. My blog is Unpickled. You'll find me at unpickledblog.com. And you can also find The Bubble Hour and Unpickled and Liv's Recovery Kitchen on Facebook. And you can message all of us during Facebook as well. Or you can email me directly at thebubblehour at gmail.com. So, listeners, thanks for joining us. And until next time, take good care.
2: I did that, not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take that. A little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be.